Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Mark. I am your host. And I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. The Lira mic and the headphones are amazing. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, that is the best way to do it. This week, we take a deep dive with James Hall. We hit on a lot of topics and a lot of bands like Marry My Hope, the James Hall Band, The Future of Bold, The Steady Wicked, and The Ladies Of. As always, we find out how we got his start in the music business, but we also find out a lot more, like how the record labels had a hard time figuring out what to do with him and his band, placing them on tours with bands as diverse as Maria McKee, followed immediately by Rage Against the Machine. But matches like those actually helped him look at music in a different way. Now, both Hurricane Katrina and starting a family had profound effects on James and his music, and he's grateful for everything that's happened, good, bad, and otherwise, He's discovered an interesting outlet for his music in yoga classes, and while James admits to never having sold insurance in Op, Alabama, he does tell us about the work he does for Books for Africa. Check out jameshall.com for music and links to his social accounts. Follow us at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. You can support the show through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch, like coffee mugs, are at performanceanx.threadless.com. I hope you guys get the same feeling of hope I did with this discussion with James Hall on performance anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. This is James Hall. I am a singer and performer extraordinaire, and you are listening to Performance Anxiety. <laughs> performer, singer, and performer extraordinaire. Oh, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned a show in Pensacola. I, I actually, my brother graduated from Alabama. So okay. my, uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in Tuscaloosa and yeah. uh, my college didn't have a football team. I went up to Rochester, New York for college for photography. So they didn't really okay. have a football team. So I kind of uh, adopted his. And so I follow the, uh, this blog and every Friday, it's it's an Alabama sports blog, but every Friday they have this post where just throw in random whatever you play your music on, make a list of the of a random ten. You know, just hit shuffle on whatever you listen to music on, and the first ten songs, just post them just as a little fun thing. And yeah. so I started since you were coming on. I started mine not exactly randomly. I put uh, permanent solution 
on as on track number one. And yeah. I had a bunch of people commenting saying, oh, this guy is awesome. Love James Hall. And they wanted to know about uh, how, how you like the, uh, or how the show went in, in Pensacola. I, I said, if you have any questions f- for James, let me know. Um, I'll try to work him into the show. And he said, Hey, he's playing tonight in Pensacola. I'd love to hear about that show. The one they just played in, at the Nick. And thoughts on this current band, the ladies of, so we'll get to that part later, but, uh, okay. But, okay. Yeah, that was, um, that was great, but we can get, we can get into all of this. Yeah. We can get all sure. this. Yeah. We'll touch on all of this stuff. And, um, and I'm comfortable talking about Katrina enough time has passed for me to where, um, I can see that, that there's, you know, um, my story about Katrina is one of 300,000 different stories. Right and experiences of it and uh, make no assumptions that anybody that's gone through that had a similar experience. I mean, people have something similar about it, but in a lot of cases there's, you know, it's so different and varied and diverse and affected so many people so vastly different. Oh yeah. And, and then kind of the, you know, it is a very, very new Orleans, a very, very special place. The Gulf South is a very, very special place. But, you know, there are some realities about living there. And, you know, you could you could be a high energy, survive anything kind of person. But when you see the the storm swell uh, the, and the waves get up that high, yeah. it's it certainly is uh, it emphasizes nature's indifference and, and strength. Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely get to that point before we get too far into things i do want to say thank you again for for coming on i know this as we were just talking about this isn't an ideal time to do to to be doing things but i do want to thank you in some respects it may be well maybe yeah maybe maybe talking about it will uh open things up maybe 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 nice to talk about it you know yeah i um i'm i'm feeling uh good about where i am and um it was uh, an, an interesting time, but it would probably be one of the more definitive times of uh, transition for me, and, um, and and especially for for how I how I, I mean a philosophical change, you know, okay. for me. Well, before we go too deep into that, I would the way I usually like to get everything rolling is to learn more about your history a little bit how you got into music in the first place you know what was going on in the house when you grew up i mean was there a lot of music in the house i, I read that uh your dad was what, a nasa engineer yeah yeah and uh let's see your mom was a nurse which is awesome my, my daughter is studying to become a nurse so yeah this um no those are those are you know my mother and father were my dad was close to 30 and my mom was in nursing school in her early 20s uh when they met at a party in houston my dad was from uh oklahoma and texas uh pretty rural upbringing um in the uh lone star oil tenements and and uh build outs throughout oklahoma and the state of texas okay um uh fox oklahoma is i think where he would and then Petrolia was the name of his high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> but um, he uh, went 
into engineering and uh, got a master's in engineering at uh, OU and then uh, worked for a while out in California, but I believe returned to Houston where there was, you know, certainly a lot of jobs around that time, both in engineering, petroleum engineering, but he went and worked for NASA as a uh, independent contractor with Martin Marietta. Oh, okay. And um, and then with General Electric. And then um, my mom was in nursing school. She had gone to school at Columbia. Um, but I don't know what she was doing in Houston. <laughs> I don't know. But um, but anyway, they hit it off. And uh, before too long, they were having me. Yeah. And uh, so they, they got married. But my dad was, you know, late 20s. He was like 29 or 30 okay. when they got married. And my mom was about 23, and uh, we grew up in a suburb of Houston, and um, we were there for about eight years or so. I don't really remember too much in the way of music around that time, other than Elton John was pretty big in the uh, mid-'70s. And, uh, I mean, I think Casey and the Sunshine Band was big down there when I was down there. (laughs) Um, uh, I know that... Eric Clapton had a hit with I Shot the Sheriff. And uh, um, it was the 70s in suburban USA in the uh, Clear Lake City area. And then um, after a few layoffs and a a little bit of uh, job insecurity, my dad interviewed with uh, a small hospital management corporation in Nashville. And... um, it was considering even going and working for the oil companies in Saudi Arabia. Wow. And so we were, there was something that was on the table. But he really liked um, this company in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we moved up to Tennessee and we were in apartments for about nine months. Okay. And uh, it was a bit of a shock as well, but moved into Southeast Nashville. And my mother and father are still there to this day. Probably less of a shock than Saudi Arabia would have been, though. Um, I did have a friend, in fact, uh, the guy who played for years with me, Sterling Roig, whose dad did, in fact, go to Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. And he was there um, a good bit, you know, and it was, that's, you know, kind of odd living because you're, you know, like in a lot of cultures where it's kind of way outside the American consciousness, there's a lot of compounds and stuff. And so you're living almost like a, army base kind of mentality yeah yeah i had a friend of mine whose dad was some uh diplomat and they moved they were in egypt and haiti and he, he said the same thing it's very strange yeah. yeah it's it's strange and it and i mean it could have influenced me somewhat i um but i do believe that being in nashville gave me a bit more exposure to music because i remember this kid in uh I think it was in second grade when I got to Nashville. And then, of course, I remember other songs, Rubber Band Man by The Spinners. And, oh, yeah. Uh, working my way back to you. They had a big record that year. And the OJs. and uh, But I had a friend that was drawing these kind of almost like perverse-looking like clowns on the pages of his notebook. Okay. And uh, I remember asking him about that. And he's like... It's, like, it's Kiss. And I said, it's Kiss. And he says, it's, it's a rock group. I said, oh, it's a rock group. 
And he was uh, among the first kids that played records for me that I really, really liked. Kiss, for me, I didn't really connect with it because to me, it just didn't sound very musical. It just sounded like a lot of explosions and stuff. So, uh, you know, it it kind of had this kind of Muppet kind of thing to it. And that may have been kind of like its appeal, but but to me, it didn't really invite me in the same way that like uh, Diamond Dogs did. Oh, yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, to be truthful, I didn't really get Diamond Dogs, but I heard it and I loved Rebel Rebel. And, um, you know, I didn't really get much of the rest of the record, you know, but I never forgot it. And in the death, as the last corpses lay rotting on the slimy thoroughfare, you know, um, all of that dramatic, post-ecliptic, dystopian rock opera was pretty powerful to me a little more powerful uh, than detroit rock city um and and look don't get me wrong detroit rock city was cool too and and yet to me it seemed like it was you know detroit rock city was harder for me to sink my teeth into and it seemed kind of oblique and you know this guy's gonna laugh because he knows he's gonna die i mean yeah. What? Yeah. You know, I'm nine. You know, I'm just yeah. kind of getting my mind around this <laughs> this death thing. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, so it was a while before I, you know, I I saw the merit of a good Kiss song, and uh, but yet, you know, Kiss is, was just not something that connected with me right away. Um, but uh, but the Diamond Dogs album did, so, and I remember um, coming home after you know staying at this kid's house and, and hearing him play the drums and he had eighty eighty kit and and uh, but he was a good good player and this is these are I mean these are kids not yet ten oh wow you know okay that were doing this um, but I remember coming home and and starting to put on like the Beatles records. And I remember talking to Tom, this kid, about putting the Beatles stuff on, and I expected that he would be pretty, like, kind of, you know, smirk. He would have smirk about it because it was definitely not very, very current stuff. Right. But he actually really had a lot of good things to say about it. He's like, oh, that's a good record. Yeah, this is stuff. He was already very familiar with the Beatles. And so I was kind of impressed by that, and I'm kind of impressed that my mom and dad had everything up through rubber soul oh wow. know? okay and then they did have one psychedelic record called disraeli gears oh yes which is the cream album and there's some you know moms and the papas and crosby stills nash and young and uh, jefferson airplane surrealistic pillow they had that one but um but i think that their record buying ended once they had me and then because because once they had me within one year or two they had you know, within two years they had three kids and, and uh, they were swearing this like you're going to be out of diapers by the time your sister comes along <laughs> well really I'm only two but uh, it's intense uh, but no when we um, you know when I was listening to this stuff I knew my mom had a guitar and I knew it sounded cool when I went into her room and like plucked the E string really hard it almost sounded like distortion <laughs> and um, 
uh, and it sounded powerful. Yeah. But I still didn't really even know what electric guitar did, but I started taking guitar lessons and invariably I, I probably had, you know, attention deficit disorder. You know, I think that my mother and father wisely figured that perhaps guitar wasn't a great route for me or a great idea for me. Um, so uh, those those lessons ended after not too long. And I got older and I was grounded for a lot of the years. Um, <laughs> and uh, among that, because my grades were that great, uh, grounded from the guitar. So I begged uh, to let them, to allow me to just keep the guitar in my room, but I wouldn't play it. And um, <laughs> after after the lights were out, I would take the guitar out and play it. And because they were, you know, resistant to me playing guitar, I learned how to play guitar in the dark, which means I don't have to follow my hands. And I had a tactile sense about what I'm doing, which enabled me to sing more readily wow. and more easily where it came to my connection to hearing music and playing music. Oh, that's fascinating. So it made me a bit more of a lead singer as a result of that because I didn't have to follow my hands. Were you interested in singing the entire time as well as guitar? No, I thought I could get by with just playing guitar, but apparently that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> uh, thought I'd be good enough at guitar, but I wasn't very fast. So, <laughs> and that you know, sounds speed was, was kind of to know where you stand, you know, in in 1979 in Nashville, Tennessee, if you know you're really slow as a guitarist, you know, it may be hard to find a place because uh, <laughs> yeah. there were kids in middle school that were just, just fretboard burners. They were shredders. Oh, my God. And, uh, and I knew kind of where I stood there. But thankfully, I got into songs, and, um, and I was starting to kind of get into competition. Nashville as well had a, um, under the tutelage of the Terra Nova family, had a great orchestra. And... Um, and so when you, when, um, if you were in a certain number of public schools, you were learning violin, you were learning cello, you were learning bass, wow. upright bass, viola, and I was in the violin. And so I learned violin across fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Oh, wow. And that was helpful too as well. But it was, it was always the ears versus the eyes. And my, I, my sight reading was never as, as strong as my, um, my ears okay and uh and so i was inclined to follow that and i know that my uh instructor caroline terranova is still around but you know she would you know it's like oh boy you got rusty over the summer you know and, um, <laughs> but she was a good teacher and uh and you know and and my first exposure to the road was through her, you know, oh, getting really? us out of school, going over to play Wharton Elementary, getting us out of school, getting, you know, all the orchestra members to do permission slips, renting a bus, renting a coach and heading down to Chattanooga. Like, I mean, real stuff, getting chaperones to sign on. There's all sorts of stuff. Man. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we got a chance to, to have that experience, which is quite cool. So you started and, playing um, in front of audiences fairly early then. Fairly early, yeah. And that was that was very cool to me. That was very 
uh, a very unique experience and and really not very rock and roll in a right. way but but I, I think that it was it was uh, it did help form some of what I understand about pulling off a show making a show happen you know pulling it together okay I um have uh, a lot of respect for families that devote themselves to music education oh yeah really do I, I do too we've I kind of taught myself how to play guitar but I never really learned how to I, I learned a little bit of a little bit of how to read music early on but quickly lost it and I always wish that it was something I had I had been able to stick with you know much like you said it wasn't all that important to my parents and uh, all my kids we, we got them in they're in the school band they've been playing for years they're all in, in high school marching band and they can all read music and it's I, I think it's incredibly important in all aspects of your life i think it helps in so many ways yeah i um i mean my son played in marching band for all four years of high school and awesome. he will you know he will vouch for it and say it kept him out of trouble yeah i can say the same thing with my kids i know it's keeping my son out of trouble my daughters i was too worried about my son you know uh yeah. It's a little bit too much like me, I think. Well, with um, with that going in, I, th I probably had, and this is kind of interesting too as well because I've reconnected with him. Uh, so I was up through, you know, middle school and uh, in the orchestra, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. After leaving eighth grade, I was tested for private schools, and uh, this particular test had. It concluded that I would be a better match for a, a smaller private school. Okay. And um, so I showed up at private school with longish hair, painter pants, and desert boots <laughs> in the year of boat shoes and plaid. <laughs> and, um, and so I was kind of an easy target and uh, kind of labeled a freak and a druggie or whatever. And... Um, and, and one particular guy uh, was, um, you know, say, you know, saying that, uttering that under his breath or whatever, until he heard from a friend that said that I could play guitar well. And then he, and then he started, you know, putting himself on my radar and saying, hey, man, you know, do you like The Who? I said, I love The Who. Do you like Jimi Hendrix? I love Jimi Hendrix. Do you like, you know... Queen, I was like Queen. He's like just checking, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know he uh, he played drums and he his mom was you know open to us playing at her house and so we'd go over to there to his mom's house and uh, play to our heart's content on Saturdays. Nice. And um, initially it was just it was we had one other guy that was coming over to as well, a guy named Chris with a K. Okay. And uh, but he wasn't at school very long, and I think he transferred out elsewhere the following year. Um, but like Pat and I were regularly jamming together, you know, for the high school years. Oh, nice! And it was just it was a I think that we were the most successful drums and guitar band in Nashville, Tennessee at that time. There weren't many of those around, you know, <laughs> drums and guitar, but we were the, among the most successful. And it was kind of funny. At one point, a um, you know, I think we put in the Trader Post, which was kind of the local rag there in 1980. 
looking uh, or anything that or we saw somebody that was like kind of open to jamming and so this like 23 year old came in and jammed with us on bass oh wow and we were sounded so good <laughs> and uh and like you know we're just like thinking where do we play where can we play you know and, and pat who's 16 and i who at 15 not even able to drive yet or like are really gung-ho about playing yeah and um and it's funny because like um a lot of you know we loved you really got me we loved you know captain america by uh the kinks we loved uh paranoia self-destroyer and i mean just all of those songs were so powerful and compelling for that time to us and informative really too as well i mean I, those are among the first covers i was learning and pat turned me on to the clash this guy who played drums turned me out of the clash and the other thing he did the clash jeff beck some of the rod stewart stuff that was kind of more rollicking yeah um, yeah and uh it just it kind of opened up my world a lot and um he just had a great record collection and um i remember uh you know and i told him this i was able to talk to him i said you know you gave me a badly needed social pass when i was a pretty odd fit for private schools you oh, that's know awesome and uh even i remember even getting into his car he had a he called it the Lost Horizon, but he had a Dodge Horizon, which is kind of a small Dodge. Oh, yep. And <laughs> I remember uh, those. He had AM. He had AM radio in it, but um, he was listening to Queen and Bowie's "Under Pressure," and uh, and he was commenting. He's like, "Man, they sound good together," you know. And I know that he liked Bowie, but he didn't. He wasn't certain what to do with Queen. Right. I mean, and he's he's a very even to this day is a very discerning listener. Like he just, if he hears it, it sounds like bullshit. He's got a real good bullshit. <laughs> you know, he just shuts it down. And, uh, the, um, and it was funny to kind of, to reach out to him and reconnect with him over the last couple of months. Um, oh, nice. you know, I don't know if there were many people that, that I went to high school with that I would do that with, but this guy in particular was great. Oh, that's um, fantastic. You know, he was turning me on to the the Stevie Ray Vaughan singles, the uh, the Jim, the the stuff that he worked on with Bowie, and um, I'm just trying to think of all of his. He was such a nerd and so aware of what was happening in music, yeah. and um, and I had you know some awareness of music, but like not that deep. But um, he was like, you know, it's like I forget what he was saying. He's like man i said well what about rush you know and he's like ah, i don't got much use for him oh wow he says but uh but working man we could do working man if you want <laughs> so he was all game about playing working man he liked that for some reason yeah <laughs> and uh and it's kind of funny because i was there was some early formative lead playing on me that that solo from working man that long solo and then right. kind of the wrapping up of the down, 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 like the uh the bending strings almost the pedal steel style bending strings at the end of that song yeah yeah influenced me and i'm still into that now i'm still into pedal steel style bends and country playing and stuff now at this point 
So he liked the uh, the John Rutsey version of Rush, not the Neil. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, for my own part, you know, my favorite Rush records were probably Permanent Waves. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think I liked Twenty One Twelve. Uh, or or uh, Exit Stage Left. I think I really got into that. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. And then uh, I dug Signals, and uh, I dug which was their keyboard album, and um, that's what everybody called it. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Moving Pictures too, as well. And I think I got into all of it eventually. You know, Fly yeah. By Night and oh, all yeah, of those, yeah. Caress of Steel, and all of that sort of stuff. But but the stuff. I mean. There was some pop writing going on in Signals that I connected with. There was some pop writing going on in the arrangements on uh, on Moving Pictures, too, as well. It was happening on Permanent Waves, too, as well, but it was really happening by the time they got to Moving Pictures. And oh, and they, I... they, kinda, they hit it out of the park with America. And then a lot of my friends that were into that, kind of went into like Spirogyra and Return to Forever and Aldemiola and that stuff I was just like it was way over my head yeah that's and um different just, just technically and and like for me to even consider it in terms of songs so thankfully where I fell off there there were records uh, coming out, Regatta de Blanc and Zenyatta Mandata by the police. And, yeah. and uh, you know, U2's records were starting to come out and starting to come online to grab my ears and, and kind of help me get through that time period where, you know, I wasn't going to be going to jazz school for guitar. It didn't mean that I didn't couldn't appreciate it in some respect, but, like, I mean, uh trying to think like what, what would be the, the context you know I was just I was trying to learn Brian Adams you know struggling with Brian Adams songs you know funk music you're going to try and play me some, you know some sort of like funk influenced you know Chick Corea it's like <laughs> I don't even know what to do with it right. you know <laughs> uh, so when you know and invariably when Reckoning came out by R.E.M. I got that and then Fables of the Reconstruction and um, uh, all of those kind of records with Driver 8 on it and Feeling Gravity's Pull and the College Rock I guess kind of grabbed me too as well Yeah, uh, at yeah. that same time and it was true that I did have some of the friends that you know went to Spirogyra and Return to Forever and, and uh, a lot kind of more of the progressive prog rock kind of stuff brain salad surgery and all that sort of stuff some of those people were the same ones who were turning me on to candy o by the cars you oh. know when we were in elementary school they were turning me on to Jimi hendrix's output in elementary school we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors hearing Jimi hendrix on a child's record player was a very very unique experience because it was i mean Jimi hendrix made records that absolutely roared at you yes i mean it was full-on stratocaster flying the assault with you know his singing which wasn't always pitch perfect but certainly intense and heartfelt 
And I don't, I think it was meant for good stereos, but we didn't really have good stereos there. We just had kids' record players. But I remember listening to it on them and thinking, like, this sounds a certain way. And this is cool stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't know how it's being done. There was no, like, get your guitar out. Okay, now learn this. Yeah. No idea about how it was done. Exactly. But it was kind of cool. And, and, you know, we heard other stuff too. We heard in, in grade school, we heard other left of the dial stuff like, uh, flying lizards, money. That's what I want. Uh, we heard the vapors with a, a song called turning Japanese. Yep. But we heard that sort of stuff and that was compelling too as well. And then of course the talking heads take me to the river. And those other albums were coming out where we're starting to take, starting to connect with a wider audience. So you had a really right. wide range of music that you listened to growing up. Yes, I did. And it was it was really, really lucky in a lot of ways because a lot of these bands that I'm referring to, the Cars among them, and uh, the Talking Heads and R.E.M. and U2, they all enjoyed some degree of like, uh, of getting an audience, a loyal, a loyal fan base, and it's oh, yeah. really cool. And... Um, you know, and of course, you know, if you're exposed to that sort of stuff, you can't have that stuff without having Led Zeppelin and other classics in that mix. Who else? The Who, Cheap Trick. Floyd. Um, yeah, Pink Floyd eventually, too, as well. Pink Floyd was certainly on the radio a lot. Yeah. Um, I didn't really get them until I was in my late teens. And a friend of mine just encouraged me to sit down and listen to the entirety of the dark side of the moon while we watch the snow screen channel on a TV. <laughs> and, um, and I think it was a really, really wise call, but I mean, you just, let's just put the snow screen on. And, uh, and so we turned the volume down and we listened to that record and it allowed me to focus on the record more differently. And it was kind of the first time that I heard all of these classic songs, which I was already familiar with, by the way, as a artistic statement. That was about the time I got into my, my late teens when I started really liking Floyd myself. And it was in the early 90s for me. So it was a similar yeah. experience where I, I knew all these songs. I don't know. For, it just didn't click with me until then. Yeah. I mean, I had kind of, you know, written them off as kind of hippy dippy. Yeah. Like not really uh, like too mellow for the psychedelia that I was influenced, that I was interested yes, in. That's right? exactly it. And uh, and then I realized that they were doing a different form of psychedelia in, a, in their own kind of way, you know, or a, a different kind of uh, esoteric expression. Um, and and that's, that, that said, you know, Piper of the Gates of Dawn and Saucerful Secrets are different kinds of things there. But, you know, by the time they got their audience in America, they were doing a 70s version of Psychedelia that would, had very, very little to do with 1967, Summer of Love and, you know, Carnaby true. Street. Very and, true. Uh, all of the kind of swinging London stuff, right? And then... Uh, and by that point that I had written them off as kind of hippy-dippy, I was into, you know, some of the Paisley Underground stuff. I was into Psychedelic Furs. I was into The Cure. I was into Echo and the Bunnymen. So the waves of post-punk music that was coming out and, and connecting with listeners in the States was part of what I was getting into by that point, too. And were you still in Nashville around this time? or? 
Um, so I, um, I had a friend from New Jersey who sent me a mixtape of The Cure, The Smiths. Um, I don't think she had any Echo and the Bunnymen on it, but um, XTC uh -oh. and other items that I might not have happened on being in Nashville. And I remember really connecting with the Smiths and, and thinking that that and I, and I guess she had the singles for the stuff, you know, this yeah. charming man and suffer little children and and all of this stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, this is really really compelling guitar music. And and you know, and I kind of knew this was kind of gay, you know, and uh, I don't wasn't necessarily worried about automatically becoming gay because I listened to the Smiths, but. <laughs> I remember kind of like like listening to Morrissey and noting how hard it must be to be Morrissey. And uh, and yet, you know, he's a poet and he's getting the stuff out there. And it is kind of funny, too, as well. Some of the music, some of the lyrics are, are funny. Yeah. And the guitar work was just exquisite. And then, the, and then look, look, the guitar work and the bass work and the drums work were on that stuff was without question exquisite exquisite sure. material yeah. the uh it took a while before i realized that johnny marr was using a capo and um but it was really really helpful to get into that music because it was uh the first time i was actually able to kind of go like oh he's using a capo and it wasn't like a gimmick or a trick or anything like that yeah it was just a way it was it was creating a new way to hear guitar music. So you know, bar chords. There's bar chords, and then there's open chords, and then hearing all of these songs rendered on alternate tunings and rendered with a capo gave me a sense about hearing chord shapes. And so, you know, when I was getting to be nineteen and twenty, I was able to hear chord shapes. So let's see. Like, how do you know it's C? Well, I just, I hear the shape. I hear the succession of strings in this order. I can tell you that the shape he's playing is a C. Right. It may, it may be capoed somewhere, but it's a C shape. And so I was able to kind of hear that stuff. Um, probably not great with naming bar chords too well, but I was actually able to kind of give you, give my, give myself some sort of reference point when hearing a song and how it, how to recreate it or how to learn it or how to listen to it. And so okay. that was also an influence on my playing. And, um, you know, and I'm still learning uh, covers today, you know. We've done so, some really awesome ones. Like, uh, I, honestly, one of the ones that I, that I love that seems to escape a few people is Psycho Killer. Yeah. I love your version of Psycho Killer. That is so great. Can't seem to face up to the facts Tense and nervous, can't relax Can't sleep, beds on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real life wire Psycho killer, casket safe Run, 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 run away Thank you. Somebody had, had recommended that we do Psycho Killer again. And uh, I didn't mention that I had a lot of familiarity with it. <laughs> and, somebody, and one of the guys that has a cover band that he plays in, 
it's just like, uh, man, I've done, you know, I've done, I've done Psycho Killer, you know, <laughs> about every rendering that you can possibly do it, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm not excited about it, you right. know, so, so it was kind of, they put the kibosh on it, you know, I was, well, I was open, I was willing to do it, but, um, you know, this particular group, uh, the ladies of does, uh, girls just want to have fun and they do a Katy Perry song. Oh, that's awesome. And, um, and we're just kind of like into good songs. Um, uh, we don't do many covers cause we have a lot of original content, but almost anything is, in fact, you know, without even, uh, without even advancing the guys on it, uh, we played, uh, Boogie Oogie Oogie by A Taste of Honey in Pensacola on um and so like you know and so and of course I'm known for shouting out the chords while we're doing the song yeah. um and uh uh I like to think one day I'd get good at it um but um but we did do a Boogie Oogie Oogie by Taste of Honey which is a really really compelling song I mean lyrically it's you know, pretty basic. And, yeah. um, but, but when you, when I think about all the bass work and the guitar work that's going into that song and that this, that this band was fronted by two women, I mean, it's just, it couldn't be any better. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a kid, when that song was working its way up the, the top 10 charts. And the other thing I kind of like about it is that, you know, doing a song like, boogie oogie oogie having a lightweight lyric delivered by you know uh, uh, a raspy voice like you know the one you're hearing right now right. carries a certain kind of kind of weight to it you know if you think you're too cool you know yeah. and uh you know it can be somehow more powerful <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeling your to cool boogie boy oh boy if I got news for you so um, wow so everybody here tonight must boogie. Yeah, <laughs> you are no exception to the rule. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not doing <laughs> for a couple of days. But um, but no, yet there's certain songs that if you can get the the contrast of either a lightweight lyric delivered by a heavy heavier sound and voice it can be really compelling or then other times are really really heavy weighty lyrics sung by a very very upper register girl voice or a perry farrell kind of voice can be just as, just as compelling oh yeah there's that contrast it's that contrast but you know and then on uh earlier on that day i was learning uh amy winehouse's uh tears dry on my own and uh, that one is is ain't no mountain high enough kind of re reframed rethought with Amy's lyrics okay. on it. But I've loved that 
progression just forever and ever. And it's and church and gospel music is a big part of what still motivates me and still sounds really cool to me. I can hear it in the steady wicked. I definitely yeah. hear that influence in that. But before we get into that, I did you, you did a really faithful cover of Needle in the Camel's Eye with Mary My Hope. enjoyed that how did how did you meet everybody that ended up becoming Mary My Hope and how did you guys get started playing together um well so I wasn't among the 17 or 18 year olds which is very good at planning and so <laughs> uh, I was um accepted into Western Kentucky University uh, with in-state to an in-state tuition break because I had done well on the ACT. And when I got into uh, Western Kentucky University and Roman Drad drove me up and, you know, was loading the amplifier into the room and, and, you know, all of the needed items and books and all that sort of stuff. Gosh, how did I even, how did I even do that? <laughs> um, uh, the RA came and met me. And uh, he says, hey, James, you know, he's like, do you like to be called James? Says, yeah, I can be called James. And he says, okay, well, James, um, you know, I'm Steve, I'm your RA. And, um, and you know, I'll be just down here to making sure everything's going okay. I know that sometimes it's a big adjustment, you know, being away from home for the first time. And if you get lonely, just, you know, my door's down here. I live alone. Um and, uh, you know, and then also I've got a, you know, good stereo and a bunch of good records. And I said, okay, cool. And when REM's record, Life's Rich Pageant came out, I think that was it with Begin the Begin on it. He's like, REM put a record out and it has a guitar solo on it. <laughs> and, um, and so we went, you know, I'd go down to his room and I'd listen to that stuff. I'd go down to his room and listen to uh, the Replacements record. I heard Marlena on the Wall by um, Suzanne Vega. I heard Tommy Keen. I heard uh, Ben Vaughn combo. I just heard so many things down in his room that I wouldn't have heard any other way. Wow. Just no other way. And Steve Gorman graduated and went to Atlanta six months ahead of me and called me up and let me know that, that look, you know, Mary, there's, we have a group that we're calling Mary, my hope named after this prayer book. And, uh, you should come down and, and try it out. And so that spring I came down and, and tried out and joined that band. So Steve Gorman of black crows fame is Mary, my hopes, original, original drummer. And, um, so I, um, uh, I was two semesters at Western Kentucky University, so I have, I think, a freshman degree under my belt. I think I got a, a graduated a freshman. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they do that now, but 
But um, I, I, you know, we moved into a house that was $450 a month in uh, little five points. And I was able to uh, start playing music live and start doing shows around the Atlanta and Little Water Tavern area. Right. You know, dugout, a place called the Dugout. Um, and then the White Dot. And Mary and my hope, after about a year of playing, we started ascending into talks with Silvertone Records. We were doing demos kind of around. Our first yeah. demo was at Curtis Mayfield Studio. Oh, wow. And then our second one was at uh, Bobby Brown Studios, which I don't even know what Soundscape, I don't even know what that was called, maybe Soundscape. And then we went to Nashville and did more demos up in Nashville. Okay. And on the strength of those demos, ANR for Silvertone Records, which was a division of Jive RCA. Um, this guy, Michael Tedesco, heard it and passed it along to his friend, Andrew, in Britain. And he says, you know, there's a band that's coming out uh, that I think you should, you might be interested in. He's like, well, what's their name? He's like, well, they're called Mary My Hope. He's like, where are they from? I said, well, they're from Atlanta, Georgia. And he's just like, I don't think I'm interested. And um, he says, I'm just not really interested in anything that's coming out of that area there. And, and then, you know, to his credit, at that time, you know, a lot of the, the Atlanta scene stuff was very, very much in the Mitch Easter and uh, REM and um, B-52s and trying to think of the other bands that really kind of sounded like that, like the Connells kind of like this jangly 60s pop kind of idiom. You're looking at a guy that followed like R.E.M. and was influenced by R.E.M. and yeah. was still influenced by R.E.M. But there was so many bands that were doing their own junior version of that that we weren't really interested in doing that. Now, it, mind you, it still wasn't that easy for us to, to make an original statement right out of the gate, you know, because, you know, we're taking all of this stuff that we really dig in. We're taking the doors in. We're taking Pink Floyd, Bauhaus, Roxy Music, um, uh, The Cure, uh, Jesus and Mary Jane, yes. Swan. Like, I mean, we're starting to get kind of heavy with this stuff. And yet we're still not really certain, like, okay, well, how do we get 10 songs that are cohesive enough to put a record out? Well, you know, when we got signed, we worked with Hugh Jones, who was a great producer, especially at roping in the four writers and or or creatives into a single singular vision. And we really needed that. And so, you know, we, we went to Britain in 1988 and recorded there in 1989. We um, you know, mixed and came home and uh, and kind of waited until the record was coming out. But it, we made, I think we were sent a dat of the record, or maybe a cassette, it was cassette, we were sent a cassette of the record through FedEx. And I remember hearing it, and, uh, or maybe not even hearing it yet, but going over and, and saying, hey, look, I want to I take acid and hear this. And so um, I took acid and listened to the record, and then uh, brought it over to... Sven and Clint and and for them to hear it and after kind of sitting me kind of 
beside me wigging out listening to it then they wanted to go score it so they went over and scored more acid and then ended up, yeah. ended up where the whole band at 2 a.m is dosed and listening to this record <laughs> and uh and we were really really happy with how it came out It's got a huge variety of styles, like you'd mentioned. I mean, it, Wild Man, Child Man sounds nothing like Death of Me, which sounds nothing no. like It's About Time, which I think might be my favorite track on that album. Yeah, yeah. Was, it's just cool stuff. Was was everybody contributing to the songwriting, or was it just one or two main songwriters? Um, that was, I mean, chiefly it was Clint, Sven, and myself. Okay. And... You know, and I was jealous of Clint's maturity as a songwriter. I was deeply jealous about that. You know, he was so good, so young, and uh, could just throw the rules out. And um, but Sven was the kind of guy that could could kind of like help rein Clint into a musical language. Okay. So Clint would take some of the risks. Sven would kind of help make it musical. Uh, Sven would also help with stuff that I was working on and um, and perhaps even make it more harmonic or more musical too as well. And then Steve Linnemann had great ideas of his own too as well. He wrote the lyrics to I'm Not Alone or at least partnered with me on the lyrics to I'm Not Alone. And, and so he was involved as well. We all had a, a shared voice in that in that group. And... Uh, and but I just I remember being so jealous of Clint's ability to just kind of write boldly and uh, and and just kind of do like a first draft and it was basically done. Oh wow! And uh, and then it's like kind of jealous. It's like oh, I'm a better guitar player than you. Why are you able to do this? <laughs> but I, um, you know, I also know that he grew up with a more well, no, we all grew up with difficult family dynamics, all of us. But, um, you know, I don't I think that he, there was more responsibility on his shoulders as a young, young man that kind of uh, necessitated him being decisive and uh, if not assertive about things. Okay. So well, um, you guys had a really good following from what I understand in Atlanta. And then you kind of went to new orleans was there a reason behind the move so um i um you know i have to take responsibility for my part in that you know i was frustrated with the band i was frustrated with the band dynamic okay um you know i was continuously ambitious and pushing and wanting the band to change and become something different or and um i was um you know, I was I was struggling for power in the group, and um, I, um, I I was afraid that we were never going to get to our second record because it was it was so it had gotten a bit toxic. Ah, uh, okay. And um, 
I told them that I was thinking about quitting the band and I was going to Nashville. And so I went to Nashville and I had met my, my then wife by that time. And, uh, and I felt that I was at a point, I was at a dead end in the band, um, wanting to do other stuff, wanting to branch out and get into other things. And, um, so, and I, you know, and I was, I'd even kind of lost connection with why I was doing music, which oh, is wow. for the joy of playing. Yeah. And, um, and not because it's an income or a revenue source or anything like that. Right. So I went to, you know, Nashville, got a haircut and started, you know, working at a restaurant, saving up my money. And I felt that if I was going to have a good chance of, getting something going in music that I was going to need to be anonymous for a while. Okay. So and, you just, um, you just, Mary, my hope didn't really have much of a foothold in new Orleans. And so you just kind of stopped music for a little while yeah. before, before moving to new Orleans. Yeah. Wow. I did. I did. And, uh, and I ate a bunch of acid too as well. That was probably also not really advisable either. <laughs> but, um, but it did kind of give me a chance to kind of see how I was changing and, um, and some of the aspects of my character that I didn't like that I'd have to kind of deal with. And, okay. um, and so I moved down to New Orleans and um, uh, Laurel moved down about a year later. I got a job working in the hotels, got my first rehearsal space, got my first couple of gigs and started playing out, started just playing out acoustically and eventually got a drummer there too as well. It's always been comfortable with guitar and drums. And this guy, Lynn, that I'd known from Atlanta joined me down in New Orleans. And he started playing alongside me. And uh, one of the shows that we did at an old venue called RC Bridge Lounge, uh, the week after, one of, the week, one of the weekdays after, I was approached by Grant Curry in um, the rehearsal space who says, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with what I saw y'all do last Friday night. But if you're thinking about adding a bass, I'd certainly like to be considered. Oh, that's awesome. And so he and I are still friends to this day. It also must be noted that the drummer that we had at that point in time, the first night that Grant and the drummer were in the room, they started talking about, you know, stuff that they were interested in, stuff they'd done over the years, and they, it dawned on them that they had been on the soccer field together when Sterling's, uh, the drummer's school, played against Grant's school in Slidell. Louisiana and um, and that Sterling had faked a fall and Grant got uh, you know penalized by it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is awesome! Yeah, so they, they're, and they're now playing together again in a group called Flood, the Flood Twin. But it was like, you asshole! Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just starting the band out. So um, were you guys playing, uh, was this new material that you were playing or was it old Mary My Hope stuff or covers? Uh, we didn't really even touch the Mary My Hope stuff very much. A couple things about it. Um, I felt that there was likely to be a lot of comparisons 
to marry my hope and uh, I didn't really want that. And the focus for me was on, you know, building an intense record that really didn't necessarily have a lot to do with Mary My Hope at all. Right. right. And so we started, you know, working on songs that, you know, the Silver Tongues have like, has like a kind of like a calypso or a reggae influence to it. You know, although kind of a punkish reggae influence to it. Yeah. But it's got a bit of that going on to it. jets to it and you know his feeling of hope has got a little bit of like kind of r&b soul with some kind of pink floyd kind of sense to it i mean so like it was pretty diverse once more yeah so feeling um, of hope is one of my favorite songs you've ever written i absolutely love that song That's a, that's a, that came on. So I got this new phone that can store more music than I own on it. <laughs> and, and so I've been surprised because it has taken everything off the computer and rendered it into MP3 and listenable form to hear songs that I haven't heard in quite some time and feeling of oh, wow. hope was among them a few weeks ago. Wow. And uh, I was driving up and I just said, I reached out to Grant. I said, man, that that solo on that song that Lynn plays is incredible. We were smart to double it. He doubled it. Okay. Um, and uh, he was like, that's the stud. And I was like, the Ampeg stud. Grant had a, uh, a, a guitar called the Ampeg stud. Oh, and wow. it, was, it was basically just an SG with a big speed type tremolo on it. Okay. But, um, but it was good sounding. Not the strongest pickups in the world, but like a good, a good solid piece of mahogany, and um, I think Grant still got it now. Oh, I cool! Still, I hope he still has it. Yeah, but <laughs> Lynn, Lynn needed to borrow that a lot of the time whenever the Hoffner was down. But yeah, and that that song with all of us, do 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 do, yeah, was kind of edgy and experimental for for us at that particular time because. I, um, you know, hadn't really messed with the diminished chords at all before or, or, um, you know, we, you know, of course, Mary, my hope was among the better fanners. We call it fan. Um, when we kind of trill the guitars, you know, really fast, strum them really, really fast Okay. in order to get this kind of wash, uh, kind of sonically speaking. 
it just sounds a certain way. Right. And uh, at the end of the song, it kind of goes into that thing where the only things happen is a cymbal wash, kick, and the guitars are fanning. And that kind of reaches the crescendo before it kind of wraps up. But um, but that stuff was, I mean, that was, gosh, um, that was uh, influenced by, I want to say, Aaliyah. I think it's the, the oh, R&B. really? Uh, yeah. She had uh, something in my heart. It's got me hooked on you. I think it was the the hook. Something in my heart. Something in my heart. Got me hooked on you. Yeah. And I believe that was even originally a country song, even though it enjoyed most of its oh, wow. uh, status at R&B. Is, am I right in saying that her name is Aaliyah? Let's see if we got the uh, singer who was killed in a plane crash soon after that, I think. Um, not her. Okay. So, but it was a cool song, and I liked it anyway. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Mary J. Mary J. Blige with her "What's the Fool?" and "One Real Love" and all that stuff was on my radar too, as well. And it's not, it's not every day. I don't think I'm a avid acolyte of American R and B, but. Like when Nelly came out with Country Grammar, mm-hmm. I mean, that was such a breakout record and such a different, different thing that I was, I found it was incredibly infectious and I loved it. Michelle um, <laughs> And, um, you know, it's, it was just such a, it was like a, more of a field holler than hip hop. Okay. You okay. know, I got into it for that. So those are those, you know, these artists over the years have definitely influenced me. How did Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls get involved with My Love, Sex and Spirit? She had come out to a show that we did at the Claremont Lounge, I believe. And um, when um, she was out there, she's like, you know, hey, it's like, let's you want to do a record. I said, yeah, I'm certainly <laughs> yeah sure. So. So we got to talking, and uh, and she's like, "Okay, well, this is what I can do. This is what I have available." And and uh, we were our manager at that particular time was a guy named Frank, and one of his high school friends, Brian Harden, was doing the record, and was he was working as an engineer in Nashville and working pretty hard, you know, Nashville at that particular time, you know, getting a gig as an engineer, you're having to hustle all the time, and. He just wasn't sleeping at all, but he did. He was able to secure three 24-hour blocks of time for us to go in and record My Love, Sex, and Spirit. And so that's what we did. We just, we'd work as hard as we could for three days straight and just not sleep at all. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it was kind of, kind of wacky, but were able to do that and record and I think even sleep under the mixing board and just, you know. (laughs) crazy stuff <laughs> and he um really really helped we ended up with just such a great great product at the end of that a record that was creative and and it just it it didn't i don't think it it de- it deviated from marry my hopes record just enough to be an, an original statement yet at the same time i think that people that like Mary My Hope could also dig it too as well. Oh, for sure. The touring you did after that was what introduced me to you guys. I 
to you and the, the band. I went to go see uh, Maria McKee live at, uh, in Philly at the yep. Theater of Living Arts. And yep. uh, me and my, my best friend, Ed, drove. It was like an hour from our house. So we drove down. We get there. And you had just started your set. And so we get in and we're listening. And then all of a sudden, you pull out this trumpet. And you start blowing on this trumpet. I'm like, this is amazing. I wasn't expecting this at all. I was, I was just kind of expecting, you know, your a typical opening act. Maybe I didn't know if, if it was a local act or you were touring with her, but then you, you blew out something completely different. Like I am so into this. This is amazing. I went out and got the album immediately afterwards. Wow. That was great. So you found the Geffen album. I found, no, I found the, my, it's funny. We actually, um, Ed and I both got different versions of the album. He got the, the Geffen one was the one with the the lizard and the okay that was the import yeah yeah I got the other one the okay. the one from Damon Records yeah where did you locate it do you remember the store I had them I remember exactly the store because it was one of the only places we would go to 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 find unusual stuff and it was Princeton Record Exchange okay in Princeton New Jersey wow wow that's cool so they had I don't think I've ever been to that store it used to be incredible with. The way things are going lately, it's it's not as big as it was, but yeah. and they had a it was two enormous rooms. You go into the front door and it was all new stuff, and it had racks on upon racks of of C, uh, CDs, new imports, everything. Then you went into the back room, you go down a couple steps, and it was the perimeter was all used CDs, all of the, and promos and stuff because the Princeton uh, the radio station. We get tons of promos and just trade them or sell them to wow. Princeton Record Exchange, and then so they would have these, you know, tens of thousands of used CDs all over the place, and in the middle of that was all old vinyl. So the, the, all the old vinyl was surrounded by used CDs. So wow, it was an amazing place. I, I haven't been there in tw uh, twenty years or more, but. Uh, my buddy Ed Yeah, was. a good record store, man. An incredible thing. Yeah. It was amazing. It was, we would go every couple of weeks. We'd have a bunch of money in our pockets from working and just go burn it down at Princeton Record Exchange. Yeah. Those were the days. What are you, what were you working doing at that point? I was a photographer. Okay. I was, uh, I was working for a studio, but you know, I was a single guy. Yeah. Didn't have a whole lot of expenses, so. Now, do you remember a guy named Matt Clowney? The name is familiar, but I'm not. He was um, among the first kind of selfie photographers that I ever saw. And so he'd always be at the shows in Philadelphia or kind of the general area. Okay. And he would take a photograph of himself and me in the photographs <laughs> and it, you know he had a camera with a little bit you know long arm yeah but he would do or maybe it's some sort of extension kind of thing on it he would do that oh, and uh awesome. he was a he was a bit of an odd sort but uh yeah I mean, you know I have no idea I kept track of where he is but uh but he was um an interesting guy that's awesome and, and then there was a b-side magazine with uh, Sandra that was put out up there. Do you remember B-Side Magazine up there? I don't, no. Yeah, 
the B-side was in Philadelphia, and they did a Mary My Hope interview in oh, wow. 1989, and uh, then or 90, and then they did an interview with with me later on than that, or a couple of times after that too as well. But um, but that was B-side kind of B-side fanzine slash mag magazine. But they. You know, they talked to Trent Reznor and, and oh, like awesome. any of the current artists that were coming up and out. Uh, I remember even they had reviewed a uh, David uh, David Sylvian show, and uh, it was kind of neat stuff going on up there. Yeah, and, neat area. Philly is such an interesting place. I am, um, you know, a journal every day at this point, and okay. um, this morning I put on flood ambiance which almost anything you enter into youtube and put ambiance after it you can kind of find something yeah <laughs> um and uh and just it's kind of a way of kind of not distracting but be able to listen to some music and, yeah. and hear as you're working as you're as i'm writing and um i did that but i also i was something caught my eye and it was basically i think it's like kensington avenue in philadelphia and it's a bit of a thing and it's just like like miles and miles of like homeless kind of street life oh wow and um i just it was intense i was watching that today and uh i'd like to know a bit more about it i just don't know like how that came on my radar and uh, and kind of what the what the deal is. Um, I mean, I know that a lot of America has its poverty district, you right. know, has its areas where you've got tent city and yeah. stuff like that going on. But um, Philadelphia historically had been a pretty encouraging experience. You know, uh, you know, we recorded uh, the Geffen record up in Conshohocken, but I'd done the mixing okay. for my Love, Sex, and Spirit singles down in uh, Studio 4 and have enjoyed, you know, downtown Philadelphia many, many times. Oh, yeah. And uh, playing J.C. Dobbs and uh, going to to pizza afterward. Where was the pizza joint afterward? What was that place called? Uh, starts with an L. But anyway. Uh, um, I don't remember. It's been so many years since I've been to Philly. Yeah. And... Um, but it was like, it was just that piece of joint and J.C. Dobbs, that was the hang. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, on the Mullen Six and Spirit tour, um, fairly early on in the life of that record, you know, we were heading up and so he says, hey man, you should play Goober and the Peas. I said, okay, well, Goober and the Peas, we don't really know them. And we show up and, and they're in a RV with hay in the back. They have little stories for hay in the back. and <laughs> And they're doing this kind of like, kind of, Iggy with Hank Williams, you know, kind of thing going on to it. Oh, wow. Hank Williams Sr. kind of thing going to it. And uh, they had a particularly young drummer named Jack White. And uh, he turned, I think he may have turned 16 on stage that night that we played at oh J.C. Dobbs. gosh. I don't know when he was born, but if it was uh, 1993 or 1994, probably 1994 when that happened. Oh. And uh, you you could trace out that date of us being on the bill together. 
I remember the singer saying, oh, we had a young Jack White on the drums here tonight. He's uh, just turned 16 or however old he yeah. was. Like he's, he is single, ladies. He's looking for quality time. If you're looking for quality time with a young man, he's single. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, oh, um, my gosh. Well, speaking of, of touring, I mean, you played with a pretty diverse amount of people. I mean, I saw you on the Miriam McKee tour. And then yep. you end up playing with Rage Against the Machine as well. Yeah. That's, yeah, we did. There's like two completely different ends of the spectrum. I mean, Maria yeah. wasn't playing Lone Justice stuff at the time. She had her solo stuff, which was actually a little heavier. Yeah. But it wasn't Rage Against the Machine heavy. No, it's, uh, it's, and that was, you know, that was our difficulty in trying to kind of find our way, you know, and, and kind of how we fit in. The um and I don't even know if it would have been an easy ride, you know, even if something did take it radio or whatever. I just yeah. think that we were an odd fit. And <laughs> uh the uh um but no, I mean Mary and my hope opened up for Jane's addiction. Uh we opened up for Love and Rockets, we opened up for the Godfathers. Oh wow. But we had a hard time finding a foothold or, or a easy band to tour with. And, you know, throughout the years as James Hall, I mean like it it just was kind of hard for us to kind of pair up with somebody that would be like a immediately good fit. We played with the Indigo Girls for a few of the dates of the uh, Damon release, the first time out with Damon Records. Oh, wow. So, and that was great. And their audience is very, very receptive. But it's incredible. We're playing big, big, big halls with Indigo Girls. Oh, imagine. Yeah, because they're a pretty big draw. They're a big draw. They're a big draw, and they, you know, and they really deserve it. They've got the songs for it. And so, I mean, being in New Orleans certainly exposed me to a lot more Roots music and Roots dynamic. The other thing that happened when I was there is within the, within the first few months of living in New Orleans, I got a phone call on my landline from a guy named Rick Morrison okay. who knew... Johnny from Hanging Francis. Well, I didn't know Johnny from Hanging Francis all that well either, but like he knew him and some of the other guys up in Atlanta and he was at the train station and, you know, where I'd be open to getting together. Well, so he and I got together and went and had breakfast at the Bluebird and then came back to my house and he started to talk a bit about music and talk about Chet and Jerry. He was crazy for Chet and Jerry. And then I started hearing him play and realized that he was a great guitar player by any stretch. Okay. Um, and I just never heard anybody that was actually as, as, as good at playing as he was. And um, I didn't really play guitar a lot when he was there. It just, he was that advanced from my skill set and my ability at that point. Oh, wow. And I thought I knew something. And he was that far along that I didn't really feel like playing much. I did listen to a lot of music when he was there, and of course I listened to his playing while he was there. But he'd go out and invariably go to the French Quarter and play with Pops, and he'd play with uh, whoever was on the street uh, playing music and was just kind of really getting into the songs. And he says that, you know, I would, I would like to get to the, myself to the point where I could spontaneously compose. And it sounded kind of interesting to me, and, and he would insist that we go on walkabouts <laughs> and um which is basically walking and talking while he rolls a cigarette but 
I learned a lot while he stayed with me. He stayed with me probably about six weeks. And the reason he was touring the U.S. Uh, is because Amtrak had a single fare summer. Oh, so yeah. he paid like, you know, $200 or something like that. You could travel anywhere you wanted to in the States for that summer. Wow. For free okay. on, on Amtrak for that one, you know, for that one, not for free, but for that one price. Point. Right, right. And, uh, and so he wanted to come to New Orleans and he was very interested in flatland music, low country culture, low country music. And then, um, and then when he left, like within a day or two of him leaving, because I'd been exposed to so much, gradually what he was communicating to me in terms of diminished chords and in terms of of, uh, of rhythm um, started to sink in. So, you know, I didn't know what rhythm was before he came to town. Oh, really? Um, I didn't. I, I mean, I knew what beat was, I knew what melody was, but I didn't really know what rhythm was. And um, rhythm is almost like a a spirit that rides between beat and melody, and that that borrows some of melody. It borrows some from beat, but it doesn't necessarily take up the real estate of both. Okay. Wow. And uh, and his conviction and Rick's Rick's conviction was that if you if you can play rhythm, you can play with anybody. I can see that for sure. And uh, and so anyway, that was a that was something that advanced my guitar playing considerably after he left because I didn't really know anything about how to play like funk or R and D or how the you know how important the footwork is to that orientation of, of more American roots music. Okay. So I started listening more acutely to that stuff. And, and, uh, and it wasn't that I, it was just that I immediately got into Al Green, but it was like, you know, I was starting to like look more acutely at Nile Rogers and look more acutely at stuff that I'd already heard growing up but didn't understand how it was rendered on guitar. Right. And, uh, and you know, so I got into, you know, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album. I got into uh, the Stevie Wonder's Fulfilling This First Finale album. I got into, like, just so many things that were taking me deeper and deeper into history and ended up influencing the My Love, Sex, and Spirit record and then also the, the Geffen record, too. Pleasure Club album become Pleasure Club the band? Well, when we, when, you know, when I'd gotten dropped by Geffen, you know, we were able to make the record we wanted to make. And most major labels will let you do that at least once. But then they kind of want to have, they want to levy influence or kind of want to make sure that this goes commercial. And, and, you know, I wanted it to be 
commercial too as well, but I kind of had my own ideas about that, you know, and they were not identical to, to other, you know, to others' ideas about that. Right. But, um, when, um, we went to, uh, you know, at some point Geffen was no longer Geffen. Geffen was at Interscope Records. Interscope's, uh, you know, I'd been through a handful of ARs from the time I was with Geffen through Interscope and all of that. And we yeah. had a good guy at Interscope, but then at some point um, Jordan Schur came in and he just was just, I'm not feeling this. And so he, we were dropped. Wow. And, um, and Grant and I were talking and neither of us felt like we were really done yet. And we were both very, very interested in doing something that was compelling and, uh, and interesting. And initially it was kind of like James Hall and the pleasure club. And that was kind of the tail end of the Geffen years. Okay. Then, um, I started, I introduced Grant to Jay Joyce and Mike Jerome and then uh, we had a guitar player working with us for a while named Mike Graff, but it was Mark Hutner who had a band called Twig in Los Angeles that really, really just, I mean, I said to Grant, I said, he's, he's wild. He's our guitarist. And so we made the appeal to him and he had kind of tried out working with me before, but it was, it was different. It was, he was, it was his, his, and he loved the Geffen record, but he was being so deferential to me that we couldn't get a good, we were never going to get a good take out of him. Oh, uh, okay. So it was only when he was really kind of free to be wild that we were going to get like really great performances out of Mark. And, um, and so he joined the band and, and when that happened, you know, we knew that we had something special. We knew we had the, you know, kind of the the visceral visceral impact of of birthday party with some of the kind of psychedelic of of Spaceman Three and uh, you know, just we had something a good a really really good mix of content and influence and um, you know kind of the I mean we just kind of became an original statement. I mean, that band still, I think, exists as an original statement just based on its chemistry alone because no one plays the drums like Michael Jerome. No one. And and then when Michael Jerome sings with me, that blend is a particular thing too as well. Right. Um, sure. Uh, when Grant plays bass, but no one plays bass like Grant does. He is not the notiest player ever, but he is probably one of the most convicted players, one of the most convincing players ever for bass being an important role in good rock music. And then, uh, and then Mark is very experimental with his playing. He loves the big hollow bodies. He loves X. He loves a lot of like noise, but he is just a great, great player really inspired and really um interesting player and uh and it was funny i remember one time when we were at rehearsal space and and he's just like she plays strat i said yeah i play a strat and he's just like i never pictured you playing a strat <laughs> i said well what do you picture me playing he's like well this this hollow bodies i say well the <laughs> hollow body was stolen <laughs> but um uh <laughs> 
but it is true that like, you know, his context was, you know, one thing on Geffen and everything. And, but, um, it doesn't matter what you're playing. Um, but, but there are certain things that we can kind of render certain ideas with. And so like, um, when it came to doing uh, Shout Your Automatic, a song like that, I was playing the riff out initially uh, for the automatic part of the song. I was playing that out on Strat. <laughs> and, and you know and it, like i um you know still i still like strats even though you know a lot of people associate him with you know eric clapton and eric johnson and right. stevie ray vaughn and all yeah uh, yet i still think that they have a special thing that they can do i think that they're a special really special instrument oh for sure but they're they're not cheap anymore because we have so many Famous Strat players that are dead, dead now. Yeah. The Strat didn't kill them. <laughs> I don't think they did. I don't think they killed them. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny, like, because uh, Mark, his interpretation of Pleasure Club, he brought a lot to the table. You know, a lot of stuff that I had really heard that he brought to the table. But it's funny, too, as well. There was also interesting blends, too, because there'd be like a record that, you know, we were digging that Grant and me had dug for years that Mark had never heard before, you know? Okay. And then there'd be another record that I'd never heard, but, or maybe actually I had heard. Um, there's a record called Eric Burden Sings the Hits of the Animals or something like that. And it's basically, <laughs> it's a rethinking of all of the 60s animal hits and a few others, Nights and White Satin among them. And, okay. But it's, okay. it's a really cool sounding record because it was done with, you know, studio musicians in 1978. And so it doesn't sound like 60s animals. It sounds like animals with the, you know, the Emotional Rescue Band or, right. or the Miss You, you know, the Some Girls Band from Rolling Stone. It's got the oh, Phaser, wow. Flanger, and all that stuff. Yeah, on. yeah. So it's... um. It's its own cover. Alice Cooper. Some of the stuff sounds like Alice Cooper. It's just, just a wild mix of of good songs. Just they've done it differently with uh, that that album. And and that Grant and me had already heard that. And then Mark said, "Have you heard this?" And it was a rare album to to his credit, but we had. You know, <laughs> we already loved it. We we're already very familiar with it. So, so there was a pretty sizable gap between the Geffen album and then Pleasure Club, the band. And again, after the second Pleasure Club album between that and what came next, which was, I think the Futura Bold came next after Pleasure Club, yeah. right? In both of those instances, I mean, are you still 
out playing music or did you put it down again for a little bit or I, no i was uh, i was out playing music okay. and, and doing stuff but also you know between the geffen records kind of we reached kind of the end of the touring cycle for that um my son was born in january of 1997 okay so that was starting a process in my life that was important to me. And, you know, in some respects, being on Geffen and not having sold a lot of records meant that, you know, I was able to spend a lot of time with him right. and play with him and, and see him grow and care for him. And so I stayed home with him a good while. And then when Pleasure Club got, uh, Pleasure Club started recording uh, around 2000, 2001 uh, for the Here Comes the Trick record. I was born in to a terminal dive You won't see me waiting for my moment to arrive I'm gonna wait into the water with my children before the servants flood your mind move faster baby you don't want to let the rhythm grind it did take some time to both get the songs together uh i mean i remember even going out to demo with the geffen band at mike campbell's studio and playing with um pw pw long P.W. Long's Real Foot, and uh, talking with Mac McNeely about having kids and being married and all of that. And, yeah. and uh, he's like, how's it going? I said, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, you should be. Yeah. I said, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I've got two. I think my wife wants to have another one. And I said, wow. He, he says, but I said, when does it get easier? He says, right at about a year. I said, really? Forget. And sure enough, true to true to form, it got easier right at about a year. Your yep. son's starting to get independent. And then also my expectations over this life being a part of my life, um, this new life being a part of my life, I acclimated it. I acclimated to it because you've already been through a January before. Right. So this is January second time around. <laughs> and he's you know, and starting to play more and starting to you know, interact more. And so there's a, there's kind of a really cool thing that happens across the years. They get easier as you go, you know, in a certain regard. Yeah, I agree. And it's an amazing thing to watch. It's just it's an amazing thing to watch, you know? And so I was very, very lucky to have, to have not been famous or to be, you know, touring all the festivals and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I remember sometime around there, probably 1998, 1999, seeing Chris Cornell, not seeing him in person. I've only seen him, seen them play just a handful of times, but, but seeing film of him playing the European festivals and Black Hole Sun was out. And, right. And it had really had a great showing at the charts. And, um, 
but he looked so disconnected from that and so unhappy doing it. And I mean, I could, I understood it, even though I wasn't experiencing it myself, but I understood how it can be terrible when you're in a band. It's just, it can be just terrible. And, um, and a lot of that is like, you know, mental stuff and, well, like, as you know, if you're out on tour and you have kids, it's not like a day job where you can go home and you see your kids at the end of the night. You know, you're away from no. weeks and months at a time. It's just, yeah, I can only imagine how difficult that's got to be. Yeah, no, especially for people that are really, you know, passionate about having their kids. You yeah. Know, and being with their kids. It's just such a crazy disconnect. Oh, God, and, yeah. um And, you know, it's not lost on me that, how um, pilots and people that are in the flight industry can end up, you know, with some pretty formidable addictions because they're just separated from the ones they love so much of their work, of their work week and their, and their lives. Yeah. And, and then, you know, they're comped meals at the hotel, you know, they get cheap rooms or comped rooms at the hotels and, and they, um, you know, and they're kind of just away from their family, Come yeah. drink and food. And if if you if you love your family, if you, if that's where you want to be, then you're doing things maybe to, to kind of get your mind off of the pain that you're in. So it, yeah, I can totally understand how bad things can happen to some good people like that. Yeah, that's a tough, tough aspect of of yeah. the music music life and especially like if things are going well on the road too like yeah and, and you know you're ascending and you're putting money away and all this kind of good stuff and yet you're just further and further away from your family yeah and um just thinking about the things you're missing you know you get you, you're making some a great living possibly but you're missing first steps first words first oh my God. first it'll never yeah. come back yeah, and I um, I'm I was lucky that I was able to be there for the be around for that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I don't know how that could have happened with things working out the way that I had hoped that they would have. Right. You know, I make no assumptions that PJ Harvey oh has an easier Monday than I had today. Right. Right. You know, I've learned that, that life is tough no matter who you are and that there's, you know, certain obstacles and and indignities that are part of the experience of of having a Monday. Right. You know? Exactly. And then in the end we're all only here for a limited amount of time as you know, unfortunately we just lost Charlie Watts and Yeah. A few other people recently. So it you know, you can't take it, the money with you. You you know, you, it's 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 a balancing act, I'm sure, for people. I've never had to do it, but I can I can imagine how difficult it's got to be. It's difficult, and yet at the same time, you're also you're in the enviable position to have a successful tour sometimes. So I'm not certain that rock and roll is a young man's game. I'm fairly certain that it's it's for people that have got some degree of maturity and some degree of perspective. You know, for me to be, you know, trying to uh, utilize or or, or um, use leverage social media so I could be 
more popular and maybe sell more records or something like that or get more likes or more hits or more followers. It's, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot that I'm interested in right now right. In, in, in regard to the record business. Um, I know that social media is controlling the record business. But if you don't, if I don't have to play the game that way, I'm probably happier oh. and, and better off. Yeah. Well, that's also, like you said, a level of maturity that maybe a, a younger artist doesn't have. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, let's not forget, like, you know, Mark Sandman was putting out his finest work with morphine in his 50s, early 50s. Very true. So it doesn't mean that, you know, what he did before that was not good. It just meant that it took a while for the audience and the vision to connect. Yeah. How did the future of Bold come about? Because that's a completely different band. It is. Um, so uh, And sound. It doesn't matter who you think you are. August 29th, 2005, myself, my wife, and my son were in Hurricane Katrina, and we had um, evacuated to Memphis, and uh, we weren't really certain where we were going to go. Uh, we were in the enviable position of needing jobs, schools. My wife is an educator, and my son was in third grade at the time, and housing. And... Um, uh, my sister-in-law had talked to the principal at her school and said that that the principal was willing to hold a spot for our son. Oh, and wow. so we came over to Kennesaw, Georgia from Memphis on October 1st, and, uh, and my son enrolled in elementary school up in Kennesaw. My um, uh, wife and I and our son also lived with um, my sister-in-law and her husband in and um, for better part of a year, almost a year. Wow. And um, that was uh, intense times adjusting to, you know, having a winter. Right, um, yeah. And adjusting to being here. I was interested in working with this guitarist named Chris Piskin. And uh, Chris had come down to New Orleans to try out for Pleasure Club. And he was really good, but not perhaps the best match for that band. Okay. Uh, but him and Grant had bonded, and, and he and I had bonded. He was a young guy. So we um, we got to working uh, pretty rapidly after I got to Kennesaw. And uh, he had a friend, and Bruce had a friend in Marietta. And so we'd, they'd drive up to Marietta. I'd drive down to Kennesaw, and we'd start working. And we really basically started that way. We started, oh. like, working and recording on that stuff. Okay. Bruce was in the bass, was playing bass at that particular point and recording everything. 
And in fact, uh, on one of the excursions there, Hours was in town, and so Hours came by, and they came by the studio and recorded some, and and uh, and that was really it, just a really interesting time to be in a basement in Kennesaw, and then Trill trying to kind of put stuff together and work and do this. Um, our record came out maybe in two thousand and seven or so, two thousand initially in 2007 and it was strong too as well but it was a different an entirely different thing and uh and i do think that the mood of katrina is definitely indelibly on that record and uh but it was a good band and so we did uh, a number of records that way and we were working with chris a bunch uh chris would have like a song or a musical statement and then we work with it. Um, but it was pretty open, pretty open-ended. And I was starting to get into collab more directly collaborative work at that particular point. You mentioned Katrina, and I know that had a huge impact on, on so many people. Did it, and besides the... You know the the physical damage that it did, and 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 the displacement of of you know the hundreds of thousands of of people. Did it affect the way you approach music at all? Did it affect any, your songwriting or the way you collaborate with anybody? It did, um, and I'll say this: I mean, what happened is that I had been on uh, on meds for uh, and and in seeing a therapist for anxiety and depression okay and uh the um the mental hospital that i was going to get these meds from and stuff like that flooded <laughs> and so that wasn't going to be possible anymore right and um and i you know and so i knew that no matter how I felt about it, I wasn't going to have really have access to to Lexapro where we were. And so I started um, journaling. And, uh, and not that journaling is a substitution for people who need SSRIs, but um, when I went to journaling, it dawned on me that that the function of good mental health medication is to create support for healthy thought processes, almost the same way you'd put a cast for a broken arm. Okay. Just to where the, the thought processes flow through the brain in a more healthy, balanced manner. Okay. I know that I'm getting into bad shape when as opposed to the thoughts flowing through in a maybe curvy if not linear fashion um that they become spirals they become repeating uh thoughts for me oh and wow. um and so i did it did dawn on me that at that particular point that mental health good mental health like anything was a sacrifice so it was going to cost me money, you know, or time or attention or intention or a consideration. It was going to, it was going to, good mental health care was going to cost me something. Good health itself is a sacrifice. Right. 
And it's a sacrifice that I've learned is really worthwhile over time. But initially, I didn't really know quite what I was going to do. And then, of course, the a particular medication, you go off of it hardcore, just the synopsis are firing, and you kind of like feel like you got these electrical shocks going on in your head. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then that, you know, with all of the, the stuff that was going on with Katrina, but it gave me a chance to actually really understand that the world is always changing. Yeah. And so the natural flow of a river is not one direction on a given curve rivers over their lifespan they'll you know they'll move left they'll move right they'll swing they'll arc they'll bend they'll do all manner of different things over their lifespan because that's the natural flow of water and so for me to see my life as well this is the way that people are supposed to be. This is the way that the world is supposed to act. This is what is supposed to happen. That in me needed to be smashed. If I couldn't smash it, I wouldn't be happy. Wow. And, and, and then, you know, and I started having a look at, okay, well, what degree of sickness and ego and suffering was I creating at that particular point? I was 38. So it wasn't, an old man necessarily, but, but I started, you know, thinking that, like, you know, in terms of creating, uh, a impossible dynamic and the bands that I've been in before, um, I'd done it in terms of trying to control others or, or attract, you know, attention to what I'm doing. None of it made me one iota happier. And, there's a Fugazi song, you can't be what you were, so you better start being who you are. Yep. I hated it. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, it dawned on me that I was n- no longer going to be able to continue to be who I'd been before. And it didn't matter because all the evidence of what I'd done over the years was gone anyway. Right. All the interviews, all the attention, all the British press, all that shit was gone. You know, so with all of that evidence of what I'd been up till now, either in a landfill or in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere, yeah. who am I going to be now? Because if I had so identified with myself as the singer, as the front man, as the musician, as the dynamic who am I going to be now? Got no skills. Got no job. Don't have housing. Who am I going to be? And I didn't really know who I was going to be after Katrina. Not right away. But I knew that I wanted to put joy at a higher priority. Um, I wanted to put awareness at a higher priority. I wanted to put useful this at a higher priority. I wanted to put uh, loving and kind and, and receptive at a higher priority in my life. Healing. <laughs> I wanted to be that too. And so, you know, I started doing the reading and, and some of the work in terms of owning up to my part in the suffering that I'd 
helps create by needing fame, by needing money, by needing all of these things that were not really making me one bit happier. Right. And so I started looking into the the work of presence, which Eckhart Tolle talks greatly about in um, Power of Now. Started reading Conversation with God, some of the Marianne Williamson stuff, the Pima Chandran stuff, Deepak Chopra. I mean, like I was kind of going for anything that was kind of more of a spiritual nature. Okay. That was really speaking to me more than, well, if they just fucking do what I tell them to play, everything would be fine. Right. And um, then I started understanding other musicians uh, more acutely in the future of old, which you mentioned playing with Bruce was an eye opener. Bruce plays out all the mistakes. So he rehearses and there's mistakes and clams all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, and he does that until those are distilled. And what he's left with is a good performance. Okay. And uh, I I never met anybody like that in my life, but I never left room for anybody like that in my life. It was always, you this is how you do it, this is how I learned it, so this is how it is. And when I began to accept that people learn music very, very, very differently from me, at that point, I was able to actually understand, okay, this is how you can work with somebody else. This is how you can collaborate. Wow. So that... You know, and then, you know, kind of the other thing, there's so many things that changed about how I viewed life after Katrina too as well. It's like, okay, well, if the elements of life are always changing, if, you know, the, the waters in the, in the creek are always moving fast, how can I, how can I have any peace? I'm terrified and anxious, you know, how can I have any peace? And the only way that I knew that I could have peace was just that if I put my foot out across the water, that a stone would be there to meet it. Just knowing that. And I'm not worried about three or four steps ahead of me. Okay. I'm just getting myself con you know, concerned over that I can reach one foot to the stone. Wow. And so I started living more like that. And, you know, it took a while to really get journaling to be habitual, but but in doing so, I found that there's some benefit to me for it. And I mean, my mom would argue that it's probably better for you than any of the SSRIs or the medic, mental health medication that they put you on. But I've, for my own part, I've learned that I don't agonize over lyrics quite like I used to. Oh, oh okay. Well, if you've already run a mile on Monday, and somebody asked you to do a 50-yard sprint, it's not going to be a problem. Right. You know, yeah. it'll be easy by comparison, right? Right. And it's kind of the same thing with journaling every day. I found that I am more inclined to be inspired than not because I'm willing to journal. Wow. And then it's also kind of helped me deal with fears or, or idle thoughts or whatever. It's just we... I've learned to square off with a negative thought or negative emotion 
and kind of just put it down and it doesn't take ownership. I can understand that. That makes sense to me. And it helped me get over like myself about, you know, day jobs and stuff. Cause I remember telling myself, this job is killing me. And, um, I was hearing myself say that in New Orleans, um, especially at a point where Grant and my relationship was contentious and, and uh, I was doing some sort of renovation work for an investment house in, in New Orleans. And, okay. And uh, I heard myself say, this job's killing me. And um, of late or, or not long after that, after Katrina, my attitude was, that this job is bringing needed money into my household to help pay for school uniforms, help pay for shoes, gas, put gas in the car, and to teach me needed skills. And so my rhetoric, my story, my suffering went from, this job is killing me, to this job is providing needed money and economic health to my family and showing me life skills. You know, that's amazing. And then here's the other thing is that, you know, I had like many musicians working in food service or swinging a hammer, or whatever we're doing. We have the rhetoric that the story that says, they're not paying me enough for this shit. And then I started changing it. I said, they are paying me enough for this shit. And it wasn't long before I started feeling it. You know, it's like, hey, they are paying me enough for this shit. And then it was like, they are paying me enough for this work, for this value work. And then, you know, I got myself to a point where I was asking, okay, money or value? Money or value? Well, I know that working for money in and of itself is not something I can endorse. would never encourage anybody to do that. But I started applying myself to value. And I thought, and I asked myself, okay, well, if I apply myself to work for value, is it possible that I will look back on my life having never become a slave to money? And I say that with a caveat that even some of the things that I enjoy cost money. Right. You know, I like good food, just like anybody. Yeah. Even the sun, even the things that I love, that I value, cost me money. But I realize that you know, at this point in time, I'll be a bitch for value. I don't mind it, but money has its limits. And I know that you know, there's certain capitalist modeling that'll say that oh, well, everybody has their price, but. I, the litmus test is, and I ask people all the time, I ask them, what amount of money could you throw at a toxic relationship and everything would be peaceful and kumbaya? There is none. So money, though powerful and a tool, has its limits. Very true. Very true. And the more I became aware of that, the more it was easy to get on board with my own work of, for value. You know, so if, if I'm an economist, I'm a behavioral economist, I guess. But I started, you know, I, I mean, I've had a number of different 
opportunities to learn and relearn this lesson. Do you work for money? Do you work for value? And I found that working for value works better for me. This is a, a very timely conversation. And I'm going to thank you. It's kind of make, it's making me think a lot. You know, when certain things happen in the workspace and, you know, there's the invariable dignity, indignities and getting thrown under the bus and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, there does come a point where you can say, okay, do I go back to the old job that I had? Do I go, you know, elsewhere? Do I, it's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to go work for him. Yeah. You know, or do I get to a point where I'm actually aware enough, present enough in order to actually ask myself, okay, do I like the nature of the work I'm currently doing now? Or do I like what I was doing eight years ago? And at that point, the answer is simple. I love the nature of the work that I'm doing right now. No argument. Okay. And, um, you know, and this job is supporting me. This job is offering me opportunities and, you know, financial benefits and also freedoms that, that come with that and sometimes without that. So I had to, you know, remember that while I was learning, you know, how to do residential wiring or while I was learning how to do, you know, like finished carpentry or framing or whatever, that there's a, there's a point to me learning that. And the point to learning that was to help me become less of a slave to money, but, a, you know, a willing bitch for value. <laughs> I like it. I have been going back and, and listening to Future of Bold and The Steady Wicked. Yeah. And I got to tell this is War EP. Well, first of all, I did a little digging on YouTube and I did see this amazing live studio performance you guys did with Future of Bold. We yeah. played like Euroskank. And yep. For the Riches. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I, I like... Euroskank on the album, but that live performance is even better. I love that. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that's who we were and that you're getting a live band to come alive on record is a big challenge in the music industry. Right. We're not the only ones, but, but that's something that is often elusive, but, um, but no, that particular live performance that was shot in Athens. Okay. And, uh, that was a really cool day. Both tracks were fantastic, but Eurosgank is my favorite. That was just okay. The that's great. Just the power coming out of the guitar and your vocals, and it was just it. Yeah, it, it was just amazing. Yes, and that's uh, you know, and, so, and that was not atypical of working with Chris. Chris would have kind of like a musical kind of idea pulled together, and uh, and then 
I just like, okay, look, horse seems like it's saying Euro skank. I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, I don't even know. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, we kind of developed the chorus of like, you are a skank. You may never be a star, but you look so good when you crash your car. I love that line. And then, um, you know, and, we, and then build it from there. And then the, a lot of like, if, if you got a good chorus, you got something to work with. Well, that and, whole song is, it just came together fantastically. And that, especially in that live performance, it was. Yeah. I think. Yeah, also look at that again. Oh yeah. I think that's actually my favorite track on that album is your skank, but the EP you did a few years after that, this is war. Yeah. That's even heavier that it's, yeah. that is amazing. I mean, it sounds kind of like Soundgarden got funky or something. I don't yeah. know. It's... You said you can't get up to date and it's too late to straight the mess you made. If there's a chance to start all over when you choose it. And even your vocals are just a little different than what I was used to. Um, your approach was different from Pleasure Club and and your early solo stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and that was um, you know, songs were taking shape in a different way, and that's got like Let Love Find You Overthrown on it. That's got This Is uh, this War, is, which is a This great Is War song. on it too as well. Yeah. We shoot golden. Uh, we shoot golden. That's another example of Chris and I working well together. Um, Chris passed on in uh, 2014. He oh, died no. uh, from a, I guess it's a, a cardiac endocarditis. Um, oh, wow. And so we lost him. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, uh, so we shoot golden was another example of that. You know, of it, like, okay, we shoot golden. What does that mean? I don't know. We shoot golden. <laughs> but then, you know, when when I started kind of building the verses for it, it's like if you're tired of bully boys, you smile sincere as they take your choice. Look to us. You have a choice. We shoot golden. You know, the doctor's saying that you won't heal. The medication makes you ill. We'll give you something you can really feel. We shoot golden. If you're like as an advertising pitch right um, and uh like in the way of like dirty deeds to under cheap if you know you're having trouble with your you know high school jock or whatever 
we do dirty deeds to underachievers. Right. Call us. You know, <laughs> one call, that's all. Yeah. And um, I like how songs can be like advertising slogans, but that's what We Shoot Golden is. I, I think Shallow Water it might be... I don't know. It's, it's like nothing I've ever really heard before. It's kind of like... Yeah, that was actually from a dream. Um, really? I, I dreamed... Um, that there was all of this shouting in this in the song called Shallow. This is shallow water. It's shallow water. And uh, so we just started that. We started that with vocals. We didn't really have any musical ideas for it right off the bat. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, my young son's on there and, and one of his buddies on there in the chorus. And stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, and, uh, and, yeah, it's kind of a crazy a song, but I would say that that would certainly be a more roots influence and you know i i i've really never spent any time with soundgarden at all but i've come to really appreciate them and their legacy and i did have a dream that uh i was headed to a festival with chris and um this spring and we're driving in a you know a passenger van to this festival and that he seemed really good. He just seemed at peace and he was kind of joking and kind of had a certain, uh, how would I say it? Um, um, just a very, very, very relaxed approach to getting up and doing a show with a bunch of songs that people were looking forward to hearing. And, uh, and it felt good to have that dream because there's just, it was a deeply troubling death for me. Um, yeah. And, um, and shocking uh, yeah absolutely and, and so you know when people like talk about you know what are you known for it's like well i'm kind of i do alternative rock i guess what would it be called you know well who are your peers i was like well you know my bandmates are my peers but i mean but you know over the years it was you know jane's addiction and and stone temple pilots and and Soundgarden and Allison Chains and you know Morphine and so many uh, Jeff Buckley and so many of these great musicians are no longer with us. Yeah, yeah, it's we didn't make it. it. It's amazing. It's 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 very sad when I think about how many have, have lost and and you know through not just through addictions and things you know ac accidents. Yeah. It's just yeah, Vic Chestnut, yeah, uh, Sparkle Horse, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, just just mental illness, death, institution, old dirty bastard. I mean, like old dirty bastard's my age. You know, he's my peer. Yeah, and uh, I don't think I think the only time he had sober since he was a little kid was when he was incarcerated. Jeez. You know, and um, there's a lot of collateral damage. I met his son. There's oh, just really? a lot of collateral damage. Wow. Yeah. That comes as a result of mental illness and addiction. Well, you picked up with another band, The Steady Wicked, which has yeah. a different sound again from Futura Bold. Well, Steady Wicked was interesting because, I mean, in some respects, we 
kind of formed so we could do shows with ours. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. Somewhat. I mean, like it was, we wanted to do something that we could put together ad hoc pretty quick. And, uh, and for our first shows that we were doing stuff, we were just bringing our guitars up to Nashville to open for hours or whatever to play a show. Cool. And um, and we were doing it because we had songs that we really enjoyed playing and we really believed in. And so, of course, we have amplifiers now and we have all that other stuff. But um, but it was, you know, some of the first things that we first opportunities that we said yes to was to getting out of town and getting okay. a chance to play with with other bands that we liked. And I mean, I'll tell you, Jimmy. Like if it wasn't for my friendship with Jimmy, I wouldn't play near as much. So, and especially during the years of, you know, post Katrina. Yeah. My gosh, talk about chaos. Uh, I, yeah, I can't imagine. You know, uh, we moved up to Virginia shortly after that, and you know, like I said, we weren't hit very hard by Katrina at all down where I lived in Alabama. So, you know, we, we escaped it, but yeah we were on the periphery so we could see what was going on you know, people were coming from out of you know from new orleans our way and houston and, and yeah. up to mississippi you know it's just now where were you in alabama i was southeast so you know where uh, panama city beaches in florida yeah i was i lived exactly i think 90 miles due north of that okay so i was in uh, a little town called level plains but it was right outside of uh, Fort Rucker military base. Okay. Uh, six miles from the gate. So it was, it was a little bit okay. uh, west of Dothan. Oh, yeah. I know Dothan Op. Yep. Oh, yeah. I used yeah. to go through Op to go to work. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> sold op. insurance in Op. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good place to sell insurance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um... You've never sold insurance in Op, have you? No, I guess I guess uh, you know whether somebody has experience or not. You guys, clearly, this guy, this gentleman, has never sold insurance at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the litmus test of whether whether what he has to say is any weight or not. Yeah, exactly. you know? if he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's never sold insurance and op. If you nah. sold insurance and op, you've got a leg to stand on. That was my job, and I barely sold any insurance and op. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. You were supposed to, and you barely did a good job of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I started changing after Katrina, and I, my um, relationship with alcohol ended in 2006. And um, I was, uh, you know, the, the behaviors of those around me were starting to trouble me. And I knew that my own relationship with alcohol was to numb negative emotions, negative feelings, and if I didn't want to feel like the ultimate loser, I would drink. Right. And then I stopped. And um, if, you know, at this point now, it's, well, it's a few years on now. And uh, if alcohol could deepen my awareness and presence, I'd start tomorrow. My experience of alcohol, though, is that it does the opposite for me. It numbs me out. It right. kind of takes me out of the moment. It gets me thinking about something that I got no business thinking about, i.e. something I think I might be able to have control over, and I don't. Okay. And so that's no longer part of my life, but I'm still working at presence. I'm still working at removing 
things, or, or put it this way, not even removing things so much, but having a look at these things. Okay, does this serve me? In what capacities is it serving me right now? Am I learning? Is it time to let go? You know, okay. Just getting myself to that place. And, and that's helpful when we get, when we put it this way, it's been helpful for me when I get to that place where it's like, I'm ready to let this go now. Yeah. It can be very, very presence giving. So, you know, I've been looking at housing. So I moved out from my marital home in 2019. My wife, ex wife, filed for divorce in October of 2019. In October of 2020, it was finalized in. November 2020, and yet, you know, that's a relationship that started in 1990. So it's a 30-year relationship, and so there's no real easy way out. Right, yeah. And uh, it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm scarred or damaged goods or anything like that. It just means that, you know, in order for me to, to keep, myself and to take care of myself i've got to do it with all of my faculty and you know i know relationships are tough no matter what you know the honeymoon you know phase of a relationship is the bait and switch yeah but uh at this point right now you know my son is refusing communication oh and um and my wife when you know, I'm asking for communication. It's, it's not been a good exchange with her. And so I'm relegated to spending time meditating on uh, the gratitude that I have for ever even having had the chance to get married, the gratitude for ever even having had the chance to to change my son's diapers, to raise him, to introduce him to music, to care for him, to love him, to play with him. Yeah. And so that's that's where I want to be. I want to be there to where I'm open and have a lot of gratitude and a lot of joy in my life, a lot of levity. So, yes, these are tough things. It's not over, you know, the... In some respects, the effects of Katrina are still rippling out. They have long-reaching ramifications, even though, you know, so far as the shock and the loss of everything, I'm <laughs> 16 years over it at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people are, you know, I don't understand how you could, how could you lose all of that and be okay? Well, you know, I'm... um. I'm aware that if I didn't feel I had access to my own happiness, I'd be a lot worse off. Yeah. You know, if I didn't feel like I had access to my own sense of accomplishment, my own sense of integrity, and, and then I would be a lot less happy. Okay. A lot less joyous. So... You know, that it is possible to have the experience. Katrina was a great teachable moment for me. It gave me the experience of being able to see how one can experience catastrophic loss on one hand and the loss of nothing of consequence on the other hand. Okay. Those two truths can exist simultaneously. 
And, you know, and it, and it dawned on me that, you know, loss is a consolation prize of no longer being a teenager. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to ascend into your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, you're going to lose. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't make sense. You're going to lose people and, and items and things and property and all, you know, work, jobs, whatever. You're going to lose things that you'd prefer not to have to say goodbye to. Yeah. Well, in the same kind of thing that I was talking about, the world always changing and, well, then how can I have any peace if that's the case? And I think the only thing that really makes any sense to me is just being for me to be grateful for ever even having had a home in New Orleans to begin with. Okay. A record collection. Yeah. Forever even having had a home in the uptown district with hardwood floors. Forever even having had enough toys for my son to play with. You know? Right. So, I mean, gratitude for even that which I would not want creates an opportunity. Wow. And it's only when I can be grateful for that which I would not want can I see the opportunity in it. Wow. But I just didn't, I don't, I don't want to go back to being who I was. Well, you, you seem to have a very grounded, healthy approach to things. Well, I accept, you know, I, I've learned that when, you know, when I argue with reality, reality doesn't get hurt about that, doesn't have any hurt feelings over it. I'm the one that gets hurt. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> so is is that part of what created the, the change in the sound of the music with the especially with the steady wicked? Oh, I would think that it's the change is a byproduct of my variance of approach. So in other words, I didn't change the music in any conscious way. Okay. I changed. It's like, okay, well, look, the event of Katrina was 16 years ago yesterday. But, but I have to kind of take in everything that has changed over the years. And that was, it was a little bit tough yesterday because I was thinking about, okay, well, this is kind of a time where certain things that I was willing to ignore were really, really hard for me to ignore. You know, this is where... Some of the some of my own poor behavior was really hard to reconcile reconcile with, and you know, and I was thinking, and it was yesterday. I was thinking about all the things that have happened for my son, my wife, and I, and you know, I'm um, I'm where I need to be. I don't, you know, I don't feel that oh, I should be elsewhere. I should be doing something else. I should be back with my wife or anything. I don't feel like that. I believe that if that is what's supposed to happen, 
it will be absolutely clear to me. Okay. Yeah. You know, but, you know, in terms of moving back into a toxic dynamic, I can't see how that would be good for me. Right. You know, I already have a, um, a propensity for making concessions to please others and then get butt hurt when things don't go my way or about hurt when, you know, my own needs aren't communicated or met or put it this way. My own needs aren't met after being communicated. Don't feel, don't talk, don't trust, help me survive childhood. So there's a survival tools. Don't feel, don't talk, don't trust, but they wreak havoc on every important adult relationship I've tried to have. Yeah. I can imagine that. Yeah. If, that's what, but if that's what you grew up with, that's hard to break. It's hard to break, but in my case, it's part of who I want to be is to have those patterns broken. Okay. You know, yeah. learning to trust, learning to feel, learning to communicate. And, um, you know, and all of those things are relatable and important in relationships. Being able to communicate an emotion. You know, I feel this. Not, I feel like, I feel this. That's a big distinction, too. It's a big distinction. Feel like is a thought. And being willing to communicate, to name an emotion, to, um, to be able to be, to allow myself to feel sad, allow myself to feel happy, yeah. proud, you know, and to be able to be a good communicator, too, you know. Well, and, that's... and then also to learn to trust that, I am being taken care of. Yeah. As long as I select something that is rooted in integrity at some level, I'm going to be more than taken care of. Are you working on new material? Because the, the last thing I'm looking at with the Steady Wicked, the album come out in what, 2016? So yeah, we're working on new songs um, going in. Uh, we're taking a break until October, I think, but we've got... You know, we got to decide whether we're doing a, a acoustic record or an electric record. Okay. And, um, you know, that's been rewarding too as well. You know, Bruce kind of saying, okay, well, we got both, you know, so, okay, we have to decide which song's going to make it on the acoustic record, which is going to make it the electric record. And the acoustic records have been really enjoyable to make too as well, just because they're, they're challenging because you're kind of, you're working with sparse, bare bones kind of stuff, but yeah. at the same time, if we're capturing a good performance, it could be just powerful. Is there anything that I've got electric? So that's been good. I mean, and I've worked all through the pandemic um, oh, because my yoga studio is, as soon as they opened back up, they said, well, okay, we want to do live music again. So I started playing once a month at minimum at the yoga studio. Oh, and, awesome. Uh, and that's just been great. That is awesome. So I never thought of live music in a yoga studio. Well, this, um, this particular practice does have uh, several nights a week, a yin practice, which is really, really slowed down postures, okay. slowed down movements. It's really going deep into the muscle tissue, the connective tissue and the ligaments and cartilage bringing blood flow to those areas or across two to five minute poses. Okay. So 
the songs that I write, which are mostly two to five minutes, are great context for a practice like this. Okay. And so, you know, the instructor will give her their posture and kind of help people ease into it. And then I'll begin a song and play it through. And then when the song completes, she'll bring them out of that posture and move elsewhere. Okay. But, but, so you're not playing like permanent solution or illingness. No, no. It's, it's, <laughs> oh, I've, I've played illingness before, but I mean, but not at like uh live volume right. uh, level. It's, an, it's on an acoustic and it's in the room, but I'll play. I mean, I found that a, a number of songs, uh, where I am and um, work pretty well there. So, I mean, like, oh, cool. even if it renders as a live wire act song, you know, the lyric content for this stuff works and applies in a lot, number of different ways. So, so I'm really kind of glad about that too. I have kept you for quite a long time here. I've, I think we're running on like three hours almost at this point. Okay. So, okay. but Thank you so much for spending so much time with me and just and talking about your career and, and all this has really been wonderful. Oh man, thank you. And um and you know, part of it's I feel good knowing that some of what I had to share at some level you felt that you needed to hear and um and that that agrees with my desire to feel useful. Oh, well, and uh, and to live within some manner of intention. Not that, you know, that I'm supposed to get out there on the road, on the roadside and start helping people. <laughs> um, but but that if if some of the things that have occurred to me over the years can be helpful to somebody else, that's perfect for me. You know, I have a friend that years ago, he said this, like, man, I can't wait till the good Lord takes me out into the ministry and I can go out and I can be preaching and praising God. And, you know, he's working at Delta. I said, you're working at Delta, right? He's like, he's like yeah. So you're no longer the youngest guy there, right? He's like, no, I've been there over 20 years. Okay. Well, you know, have you ever thought that maybe you're supposed to be at Delta? Yeah. Like, How do you figure that? He's like, well, I said, you know, there's a lot of young guys coming in as mechanics, coming in from mechanics school and they're living alone and they don't talk to anybody. And maybe the only encouraging thing they heard this week came from you. Wow. Yeah. You're having an effect on those around you. Yeah. Whether you choose to recognize it or not. And that is some of the work that we're talking about too. Yeah. There are people, you're, I don't know where you work. Are you the youngest guy still on? Not even close. <laughs> so, Not even close. So some of what you have to share and some of the encouragement you have to offer may be the kindest thing that some of the staff hears all month. I hadn't looked at it like that. Well, you don't know their home life situations. Exactly. That's very true. And some of these, some of these kids are living in ways that you and me couldn't deal with. Right. And, um, and so, you know, having somebody who is older kind of say, no, this is something I'm really, really glad you're here. I'm glad you think about it this way. I'm glad you approach it differently. Makes it kind of wild and exciting and kind of cool or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. 
and you know it can it can have a a, uh, a rippling out effect that's really good in the world you know especially with you know people feeling alone all the time yeah and this past year has just amplified that feeling isolated yeah yeah so there's a there's a point sometimes to even the work that we're not really certain we're a good fit for. Yeah, that's you know, true. When I came to Books for Africa, I wasn't certain I was a good fit for it. Why? It was all in the white suburban male. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things, right? <laughs> Who thought of Africa as a single location, a single entity. Yeah. You know? No, I knew that there were countries there, but still, like, you know, I still, like, contextually we think of you know so many americans i was just like i'm thinking about africa as like one like kind of landmass. yeah exactly exactly and uh and 55 sovereign countries replete with their own tribal systems and their own languages and their own cultures so are, are there similarities between some of them yeah but it's not identical right by any stretch exactly exactly no you know, no more than in in our own country. You know, things in exactly Florida right. aren't the same as things in Colorado, right? By any stretch of the imagination. Right. Books for Africa. What do you do there? What What does that do? How does that work? Well, we were started in '88 when our founder, who was uh, retired from publishing himself, traveled to Uganda, and when he got to Uganda, he couldn't find books anywhere. What little that was left behind was falling apart from the 20s and 30s from the British Council. Oh, wow. When Idi Amin declared the presidential win in 1971, one of the first things that he did was had his henchmen rake all the books out of the schools and libraries and set fire to them. Wow. And then the other thing he did was he gave anybody born of either Asian or Indian descent 90 days to pack up their family and to get out of Uganda. Wow. So in those two actions, he created a society that values two things, the almighty shilling and the almighty bullet. Yeah. And if you weren't born with either a military legacy family or you weren't born with, like, serious, serious money in Uganda, the door to your education was closed. Wow. And, um, and so the first books that Tom our founder said about sending was in 1988 and the kids were so excited to receive their first books in Jinja, Uganda. They were picking them up by the pages having never seen humans hold the book before. Wow. Oh my gosh. Now, conversely, America doesn't struggle for books. America struggles to value books. For America sure. will garbage 322 million books this year. We are sending a hundredth of what gets garbage in America on an annual basis. Wow. When people ask me what I'm doing there at Books for Africa, and I just, I say, like me, you got a birthday twin in all 55 African countries. I don't care what God you subscribe to. That's a fact. That's yeah. Statistics 101. Yep. Whose life and years looks entirely different than yours and mine does. Is it possible that even one book in his or her hands could make a valid difference? Absolutely. Well, let's just start there. And so it becomes empowerment because 
you know, it doesn't matter what anybody's like into what they're, what they're, you know, crazy about or hip to or what they enjoy. It's really of little consequence long as the kids love it. Yeah. You know, the, the coursework for pediatric nursing is <laughs> tough no matter what, yeah. right? Yeah. Did your daughter studying uh, anatomy and physiology? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know, that's uh, one semester of trying to memorize every system, <laughs> every item on the human body. Yep. And then the next semester of trying to apply all of it. So it's tough coursework, but it's, it's, so no matter what, you can't just kind of, it's never going to be able to be easily handed over, right? But giving kids the tools that they need to succeed, that's worth doing. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a guitar, you know, guitar playing. You know, I, um, I read an interview with King Sonny a day in probably 1983, 85, because, you know, I had one guitar player magazine with Angus Young on the cover and I read everything in it, Right. everything in it, all the articles and stuff like that. But I didn't hear his music for another oh, 38 years. Oh, wow. No. Yeah. You know, I heard his influence in the talking heads and other things that were kind of, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. But in general, I didn't really hear him until years and years later. But I think that music and, and human interests are so wide and varied and long reaching that it can work the world over. And so when people ask me, would you send a book about Jimi Hendrix to a kid in Nigeria? I said, absolutely, I would. Because if there was one of me growing up in Tennessee, there's, and there's 200 million Nigerians in 2021, someone there is going crazy for guitar. Oh, yeah. I have to believe that. Well, James, man, I, like I said, I have kept you for so long. How can people follow the music? How can they uh, learn more about Books for Africa and keep it yeah, keep so, up with um, you? Books for Africa is its own entity, and that is um, it's booksforafrica.org. And then James Hall is, is his own entity. <laughs> pretty much down to James Hall is pretty much down to one person now. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I am actually do have a jameshall.com and that has a, a lot of music at it. And someone recently ordered a bunch. So I occasionally get the ping when somebody orders a bunch of the music off. So that's cool. And I'm um, vying to get everything I've done pressed and released on vinyl oh. why because i like looking at the artwork oh yes um i have a great appreciation for the vinyl experience i don't have a return table right now everything i've got is pretty much digitized or digital or pixelated at this point yeah however i have bought records that i only listen to digitally but i like it because i have the artwork yes the, the album is the genuine article it is i that's the only problem I have. I don't mind digital downloads, but I don't feel like I own it, and I can't. I'm not going to stare at my computer and look at a JPEG while I'm listening to it. No, it's not the same thing. Nope. And not uh, close. but yeah, somebody did put out in uh, Britain. And it's hard to find, but you can find the occasional My Love, Sex, and Spirit with the lizard and stuff on it. That so, yeah, that's, I gotta I gotta try to find that because I I thought that artwork was amazing. I've got. Like I said, I got the, the Damon one. My friend's not yeah. giving up his, so. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's out there. But none of the Pleasure Club stuff is on vinyl. And uh, so, yeah, we have our work cut out for us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many records I've done yet, but I've done a few. And I still feel good. I still feel all right, you know. Good. Still to tell about it. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Well, well, Mark, I appreciate the time with you tonight. Well, really thank do. you so much. I appreciate it as well. It's It's been a wonderful conversation, and it, it's... Yeah. Like I said, very timely for a lot of what we talked about. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.